Father, we are grateful. We do cherish this gift of grace, and we recognize before you today, Father, not just your greatness, but the sufficiency of Jesus. There's nothing more that we could need. So, Father, as we've walked into this room today, perhaps thinking of different wants or desires or burdens, may we lay them aside and come once again to the foot of the cross, help us to gaze into the empty tomb and see that we have all that we need in this gift of grace. We love you, Father, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you to, to Matt and Sarah and the rest of the worship team for leading us and setting that tone of, of worship. This morning, I always do such a great job week in and week out. So today, uh, church, we get a chance to finish our series on parables. And uh, I, I look forward to, to drawing this to a close as we transition out of this series and into a season of Advent. And uh, it, it's really been an, an enjoyable series for a lot of different reasons that I know I've appreciated it, I hope you have as well, but I want to remind you as we begin today and as we draw this to a conclusion, uh, that this is really designed to point to the larger theme of the year. Now, if you think back to January, the tone that we set for 2021 was to fix your eyes on Jesus. And the importance of that call, obviously originating from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, and we spent several weeks to kind of set that tone. And the idea was is that as you go through this pandemic and all the disruption that it was creating, the turmoil that we found in our culture, there was such a tendency and a propensity for us to, to get distracted and to veer to the left or to the right. And the call that I felt like the Lord was placing on our heart was to say, just, just look to me. I just fix your eyes on Jesus. And so every series that we've done so far this year has been in, designed and intended to help us do that, right? We, we went through the Lenten season and through Easter looking at the different names and titles that are often attributed to Jesus. We spent a, a great deal of time looking at the words of Jesus that are written to the churches in the book of Revelation. And then as the summer drew to a close, we started this series on parables. And, and this was, again, to draw us into some of the very words and one of the primary teaching methods of Christ. And in the theme, or I guess the title for this series, was The Power of Story, How Jesus' Parables Changed the World. Right? And, and when we started this series, we talked about how powerful storytelling really is. And I want to remind you of some of those things that we established. And one of the things that we saw is that storytelling, uh, react, or we react to storytelling because it's almost like we are designed to, to, to respond to it in a very uh, compelling way, physiologically even. Right. So if you hear a story of distress, Research has shown that cortisol will be released in your brain to help you focus, which makes sense because if you're ever in a situation of distress, you need that same sort of focus to navigate your way through it. And so the same chemical is released in your brain when you hear a story of that nature. Uh, if you hear a story that creates some more of an emotional response, oxytocin is released in your brain that helps you have that sense of empathy and to understand greater emotions and feelings. So you are physiologically designed to respond to storytelling. We also know storytelling is incredibly effective in the realm of education. It helps with retention. I told you uh, in that first series that you are 20 times more likely to remember a statistic or data point if it's connected to a story than if it's just presented. Most of you probably forgot that because I didn't connect that data point or statistic to a story when I first told it to you. But 20 times more likely to retain information if it's connected to a story. Storytelling resonates with every different type of learner. 
right? Visual learners love the idea that they can paint a picture in their mind that they can see as they hear a story. Auditory learners love the words that are used to craft a story. The, the kinesthetic learners can place themselves in the story and imagine their, their activity and their response and the doing within it. So every different type of learner tends to respond to storytelling. We also know that storytelling is incredibly effective at eliciting action and an actual response. Storytelling is incredibly effective and powerful. No wonder it was one of Jesus' primary methods of teaching. And I think it goes without saying that Jesus is the greatest storyteller the world has ever known. So this series was designed to look at the power of his stories. And we've done that, right? We've covered almost all of them in the Gospel of Luke. We've looked at some of the most well-known ones, like the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Lost Coin, some of the lesser-known ones. And so as I was planning out this series, I was trying to orchestrate those different parables to coincide with different themes or seasons that I know that I knew we would be facing as a church, right? And so we didn't go in order. We kind of put them to coincide with some of those themes. And so as I began to think about the last parable that we would look at, I knew it would occur on this Sunday, this last Sunday of Missions Month, right? I, I knew that it would kind of lead us into Advent as well. And so I started thinking, okay, what story, what parable makes the most sense for where we're going to be? And the one that I kept coming back to was not a parable that is most well-known, and yet it's not one that's easily forgotten either. It's, it's kind of right somewhere in the middle. The, the parable I kept coming back to is the parable of the mustard seed. And that's the one we're going to look at today. And I do think it, it works well to the spirit of missions. I think it works well to set us up for Advent. But what I really love is that my hope is that the conclusion it brings for us today kind of ties up this series and reminds us that the power that we're seeing is not just the power of storytelling, but the power of Christ and his kingdom. And that's what we're going to be looking at. So grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13. And now one of the things that we've done as we've progressed through this series is we've taken some time and energy to recognize that the context surrounding these stories and these parables are just as important as the parables themselves. Now a lot of times these stories do stand on their own and you can extract them independently and walk away with an interpretation by just looking at the parable. But many times, by considering the context surrounding that parable, you're able to get a greater insight and a greater point of emphasis that Jesus was probably trying to make. And so we've taken the time to look at what was happening around, what were the questions, the circumstances, the occasions that prompted Jesus to tell those particular stories. We need to do that again today. And so when you look at chapter 13, you see that it kind of has an odd beginning. That's a very unusual uh, parable, the parable of the fig tree. It was a more difficult one, so I scheduled it for a Sunday. I knew I wouldn't be here and gave it to Warren. Thank you again, Warren. Uh, but after you get through the first nine verses of chapter 13, you get to verse 10, and you see a shift, a new, a new section. And, and this is kind of a new setting, a new set of circumstances, and we know that because in verse 10 it says, on a Sabbath. Right? So now there's a new situation that's emerging, and it is within this situation that we're going to find the parable of the mustard seed. So I want to read it in context we're going to start in verse 10, and we'll read through the parable of the mustard seed. It says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hand on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? 
Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. There's your parable, and I love it. Just four simple verses. Jesus was such a remarkable storyteller, and one of the things that made him so remarkable is how he could tell such powerful stories that were very short and concise. He was great at telling short stories. I am not, I've never been a man of few words. And so Jesus is able to bring these complex truths in a very short and succinct way. That's really what a parable does, if you remember. A parable is a story that calls to mind a question or offers a lesson. And it is usually using a simplistic thing in life, like planting, or like cooking, to explain something more complex, like the kingdom of God. And one of the things we said throughout the course of this series is that one of the dominant themes to Jesus' parables is this idea of the kingdom of God. Over and over and over again, he uses parables to explain the kingdom. And that's exactly what he does here in the parable of the mustard seed. Right? That's the opening question. What is the kingdom of God like? You ever ask yourself that question? How would you answer it? How would you describe the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God like to you? Have you wrestled with that at all? Can I suggest to you this morning that if you haven't really taken the time to wrestle with that question, think about that question, then there's a good chance that your mind is fixated on the wrong kingdom, right? That you've given too much thought and energy to the earthly kingdom rather than the heavenly one to which we've been called. What is the kingdom of God like? The essence of Jesus's ministry is to announce the kingdom of God and to declare that that's exactly the kingdom that we belong to. We need to know what it is like. We need to understand it, describe it, see it, and understand our role within it. So this question is incredibly important. What is the kingdom of God like? And so Jesus presents this question, and that's what initiates this parable. And what's his answer? Well, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's a pretty interesting answer, isn't it? It's like a mustard seed. It's, it's like yeast. How many of you were thinking of mustard seeds and yeast when you were presented with the question, what's the kingdom of God like? Yeah, that's exactly what comes to Jesus' mind. This is exactly how he wants to teach us about the kingdom of God. And what you see with those two images is really that simple message that you can immediately extract from this parable is that something with a very simple beginning can have a very profound impact. Right? If you think about the little amount of yeast that can work its way through 60 pounds of flour, right? or the mustard seed, it's a very powerful image. We've we got a picture of a mustard seed that shows you just how small that mustard seed is. And this is not the smallest seed that exists, but it's close. And in this point in time, people would have a, a ready uh, example in their minds to think through of just how small that mustard seed is, and yet something so small can become a tree. Right? We take a look at this picture of this tree to just see the massive transformation of what can come from that one small seed. Right? And so the, the, the depiction, the image, is pretty clear. 
The contrast is so stark. Something with such a small beginning can have such a large and profound impact. That's what Jesus is trying to convey about the kingdom of God. Now, why is he doing that? A couple of things that I would point out to you this morning. First of all, I want you to think about the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. Right? I want you to think about how Jesus' ministry started and how it progressed throughout his lifetime. And there was definitely a moment where there was momentum, wasn't there? There, there were moments where large crowds were gathering around Jesus. And don't you know, in those moments, the disciples were like, this is it, man. Look at, look at this potential. Look at this movement. And don't you think they just imagined the masses continuing to gather until it grew and grew and grew. And that's how the kingdom would be established. But as you read through the Gospels, that was not the trajectory of Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, it diminished. The masses didn't grow, they withdrew. The crowds got smaller and smaller and smaller. The further into the ministry that Jesus went, the hostility grew to the point that at its culmination of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, he was more or less abandoned and alone. And so part of what Jesus might be doing here is reminding his disciples, even foreshadowing, maybe this becomes a parable that they look back upon, that as that trajectory begins to go in a different way than they imagined, and, and things begin to worsen, and they begin to worry, is this getting smaller? Is this losing in its influence and its importance? Jesus is trying to remind them, don't worry. Amazing things can happen from small and unsuspecting beginnings. Even this carpenter from Nazareth. Right? He's trying to get them to remember what it means to maintain that faith. It's a good reminder for us right, that a lot of times we anticipate our life to go on one trajectory, and a lot of times it's going in the opposite direction. And we can be disillusioned, we can be confused, we can be frustrated, and this is a great parable to remind ourselves, don't worry, even when it looks like things are diminishing, God can still do incredible things from simple and small beginnings. So that could be an element of what is taking place here, right? But part of what he's really trying to establish is not just that movement, but getting them to think about what the kingdom of God is really like and where it's going to go. And so if you were a disciple and you heard that question, what would you imagine? What did the phrase the kingdom of God mean to you? And probably what they were sitting there thinking of, if, if I were had to, to give some form of an assumption today, they're probably thinking about the kingdom of David. Right, that, that's what they looked back upon. They're, they're picturing some moment where they could find this freedom to be released from Roman captivity and Roman rule, to have their established kingdom once more and to be at peace with enemies on every side. That was likely what they were thinking. And if that was the image they were holding on to, let's not gloss over the fact that that is pretty significant. Right, to imagine this, this small little nation of Israel Right? This, this small gathering of people who called themselves Jews somehow securing for themselves independence from the Roman Empire and to reestablish their kingdom, that is a significant vision and goal. And as significant as it is, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you're still thinking far too small. Another mistake that we can often make. Right, that when we think about the solutions that God may have for us or the paths that may be before us, we can envision something incredibly remarkable. And how many times, as incredible as that image may be, does God call us in and say that's still 
too small. I can do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. And what we see that Jesus is alluding to in particular comes from this parable of this mustard seed that grows into a tree with many branches. And what happens with that tree? According to the parable, there are these birds that are perched on these branches. Now, it was very common in the Eastern thought at this point in time to use the image of a tree to represent a kingdom, right? A kingdom was like a tree with many branches, and birds in those branches were often representative of the subjected peoples that now found themselves under the safety and security of this kingdom, right? And so that was a common image of a kingdom. And so part of what Jesus is alluding to is the expansion of this kingdom and the other peoples that will find their shelter and their safety within it. And a lot of scholars would suggest that Jesus is even pointing to what we find in Ezekiel chapter 17. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24 says, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it, and they will find shelter in the shade of its branches. And so what Jesus is trying to convey here to his disciples with this parable about the kingdom of God is that this kingdom is not intended for just one city. It's not intended for just one country, one region, one people. This kingdom is literally going to fill the earth until every tongue, tribe, and nation come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what this parable is conveying. And that is a remarkable statement. And we need to reflect upon the significance of that sort of expansion to recognize that Jesus is saying, my glory will fill the earth. There is not a corner of the globe that this kingdom won't touch and that God won't pursue. That's incredibly remarkable. When you think about the trajectory of Christianity and the message of this gospel and how it has spread across the globe, it's really, it's really incredible. Right? Because as I mentioned earlier, by the time Jesus reached to this culmination of his ministry that led, leads to the cross, he is more or less abandoned. And this carpenter from Nazareth, this very humble, small beginning, is ultimately buried and laid in a tomb like a seed planted in a ground. And on the third day, he comes back to life, and the message is that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, that he came not to defeat Rome, but to defeat sin and death. And that message begins to spread, and the disciples return, and people begin to gather once again to the point that in Acts chapter 1, according to Acts chapter 1 at the ascension, there's about 120 people. That's it. 120. That's all that was there at this point that believed in the resurrected Christ. And that was the beginning. Now I want us to consider the movement that took place. I brought a video that kind of depicts this and shows it. And we're going to play this video. And part of what you'll see as this video progresses is just an image of, of the expansion of the gospel. All right? And so I want you, as you're seeing it unfold, we have that video as you see it unfold, you're going to see that the Roman Empire starts in red. And then everything that is traced out in white represents the movement of the gospel from the beginning of those 120 believers until what will ultimately be, be about 
2015 based on this video. And as you're seeing it play, you'll notice there's an ebb and flow to different regions and different movements and different areas. But you see the overall impact. And what you're watching as you're seeing this video play it is not just the, the, the changing of government preferences and religion. You're not just seeing expansion from, from some sort of common idea. You're seeing lives changed. You're seeing a movement unfold. And ultimately, what it really is depicting is, is a tree that is blooming <laughs> and spreading its branches across the globe. And as it spreads its branches, birds of every type, every tongue, tribe, and nation begin to find their shelter, begin to find its rest, begins to find its place in the movement of this gospel. What you see here is 120 people moving to a place of what is now about 2.6 billion. And that is remarkable. And as you see this video draw to a close, what you'll see is that there's still some regions of the world that have yet to be reached, right? And that's an appropriate image for us to reflect upon in Missions Month, right? That there are still places that need to hear. And, and that is often the motivation when we come together and we talk about missions. We think about the task that is yet to be completed. We think about the task that is remaining. And as much as I want that to motivate us this morning, I also want us to be motivated by the task that has been accomplished and to recognize just how incredible this is and that when you see a video like that, you would take heart and courage and recognize that the kingdom of God cannot and will not be stopped. And that's the kingdom that you're a part of. What role will you play in it? And that's really where this parable begins to hit home. What does it mean to be part of a global movement? And how do I play a part in this expansion of God's glory over the earth? And I think that's an important question for us to, to wrestle with because we're confronted with what it means to have global impact all the time in our culture. In fact, messages have global impact with such, with, with such greater ease and, and sufficiency and convenience today than they ever did, obviously, in this point in time. We live in a world where things go viral all the time, right? And we know that we can actually contribute to that. We, with just the simple uploading of a photo or a video, we too can have a global influence just like that. So people are constantly trying to go viral. In fact, let me ask you a question. Does anybody here know uh, what the most watched video on YouTube is? Any, any guesses? Most watched video on YouTube? Come on, turn it up. Let's get into it, y'all. Go ahead, sing with me. Baby Shark. Mommy Shark. You're welcome. You're going to love it. Can we stuck in your head right? Okay, turn it off. That's all we can handle. That's all we can handle. That's the most watched video on YouTube. The message that is going across the world right now with greater ease and convenience is the message of Baby Shark, right? 9.6 billion views on YouTube. If you watch those views back to back continuously, it would take you 30,187 years to watch them all. That's how many times that video has been watched. Here's how it started. So that song, rumor has it, started at like church camps in the 70s. And then back in 2015, uh, a production company in South Korea made this video and put it out there. And it started to gain a lot of popularity in South Korea 
to the point that a lot of the famous bands and artists there started incorporating it into their concerts. And after that, there was a new dance video that came out with it, and then a hashtag Baby Shark Challenge that led to Indonesian farmers singing and dancing about it, to even Josh Groban singing and dancing about it, until it literally took the world by storm. And, and now they've got plans for a musical and a movie all over Baby Shark. Okay, This is the world within which we live. And as a result of that sort of ease with which something can have that sort of a global impact, people are constantly trying to create that same sort of impact on their own. And so you can find article after article about how you can go viral, right, and how you can have this message of global influence. And as I was reading through a variety of those articles, more or less the advice tends to be the same. All right, here is usually what you find. Uh, keep the video short, keep it humorous, use hashtags, use influencers, right? Like that is the pathway in our world to global notoriety. It was not the pathway of the gospel. It was anything but short, anything but humorous, anything but using the influencers of the day. I want us to reflect upon just how remarkable it is that the kingdom of God has truly begun to spread all over the earth. I mean, it starts with Jesus himself. I mean, think about the ministry of Jesus. He lives at a time where numerous people and other leaders had aspired to claim this title of Messiah. You can go and find that in the pages of history. Other people making that same claim, but there was a big difference. He was different in how he lived. The other folks that claimed that sort of dominance and pursued that sort of establishment of God's kingdom and to, to have that reign of Messiah, they chose violence and they chose power. Jesus chooses compassion, and he chooses humility. It wasn't just a different sort of life, it was a different sort of death. You can go through the pages of history and you can find people like Menahem and Simon, son of Giora, who also claimed this title of Messiah, and they would gather up a movement and they would seek that sort of notoriety and oppression, and then when they were killed, their movement stopped. When Jesus was killed, his movement began. It's a very drastic difference. There was something different about his death. Every other person that claimed that sort of power, that sort of ability to usher in the kingdom of God, to be a Messiah, when they were killed, their movement stopped and their names faded into the pages of history and nobody's talking about them today. We're talking about Jesus because there was something different about his death. And what was it? Essentially, that his death wasn't the end. Right, that, that he was resurrected and he came back to life. Now listen, I don't know what you think about the resurrection in your heart of hearts. I assume that if you're here, you believe in it. But if you're like me, don't we always have questions? It is a little far-fetched at times. Don't you have to, to stop and wrestle with that? Now, did he really die? Is this really true? It feels like a fairy tale. It feels unrealistic. Maybe it was a lie that they concocted. They hid his body. I mean, what, how do we really know? I don't know how you think about it, I don't, I don't know. Here's what I do know. It is this historical fact that the early church believed with all their heart he was a resurrected Messiah, that death had been defeated. They knew without a shadow of a doubt that that's what they believed, and the earliest evidence of that is all of Paul's letters that were written from 40 to 60 AD, constantly declaring the resurrected Christ and if you want to sit there and think, well, maybe, 
Maybe they lied about it, right? Maybe they conjured up, maybe there was 120 people got together and said, you know what, let's manufacture a lie about this guy. Then what you have to consider is that it wasn't just a different life, it wasn't just a different death, but it was a different response. Because what did they have to gain? What did they possibly stand to gain to lie about it? Nothing. They weren't influential. They were tax collectors and fishermen. They weren't in established halls of power. They were suffering in the depths of prison. And every single one of them decided to claim the resurrection of Jesus. It cost them their life. They had nothing to gain by claiming a lie. They believed it with certainty. And the reason it began to move from there is because it wasn't just a different sort of life, a different sort of death, and a different sort of response, but it was a different message. It wasn't short, it wasn't easy, it wasn't humorous, it wasn't influential. You know what it was? Die to self. Be counted worthy of suffering. And that was the pathway that led to the movement of the gospel literally taking over the world. And it demands us to sit and marvel and further ask, what role do I play? Because this movement is still spreading, this kingdom is still expanding, and I'm a part of it. We are a part of it. What role do we play? And to answer that question this morning, I want to give you a different image. I don't want you to think so much about a mustard seed. I want you to think about a dandelion. You ever seen a picture of a dandelion? I brought a picture of it just in case you're like me and it takes a while to figure out what plant is what. So a dandelion's pretty interesting. In fact, I was given this image at a missions conference that I attended about six years ago, and the guy that presented this idea and this illustration is a well-known missiologist in the Baptist family in particular. His name's David Garrison. He's done a tremendous amount of work across the world documenting movements of God. And I took some notes on this illustration. I'll share it with you today. He said, I want you to think about the kingdom of God like a dandelion and our role within it. You know what's unique about a dandelion? You know they're found literally in every habitable continent on the planet, everywhere. And, and they truly are a viral plant. And the reason they are is because they can adapt to their environment. Right? So they don't have to have a particular climate or a particular context, they can consistently adapt to whatever environment they're in, and that's what allows them to really further move across the globe. Part of the reason they are so easily able to adapt is because they have very deep roots, right? Their roots go very deep and allow them to endure certain things, and like many plants, they are constantly directed towards the sun, and though they are often viewed by the world around them to be a nuisance and a weed, when you actually get to know the, the internal qualities of a dandelion, their leaves have healing properties, and they're filled with vitamins. And those little florets at the top of a dandelion, when the wind blows and those florets move wherever the wind leads it, they have the capacity to be replanted and have the DNA of a whole complete dandelion to reemerge. It's really remarkable. This is why they are truly moving all over the world. And what an appropriate image for us to think about our role in the kingdom, right? To recognize that as the kingdom of God, as believers, we too should be found on every habitable continent there is. And part of the reason we should be able to exist in those arenas is because we can adapt to our environment. 
That's what we're called to be as believers, to, to adapt to the environment within which we live. And so if that means you live in another culture across the ocean, or if you live in your own culture here at home, you adapt, right? And we adapt because we can recognize that it doesn't matter what happens around us. We are called to adapt to our context. Does it matter who's in the White House? Does it matter what the cultural turmoil is? Does it matter if you're rich, you're poor, you're black, you're white, you're Asian, you're Hispanic? Doesn't matter. We are called to adapt. And the reason we can is because our roots run deep. We do not build our lives upon the winds of culture, but on the words of Christ. And they are strong and secure. And as a result, we fix our eyes towards the sun. We fix our eyes towards Jesus. And when people come in and discover us, sure, maybe from afar, maybe by perception, we're seen to be a nuisance, we're seen to be a weed, but when people really begin to understand who we are as believers, they find healing properties within us. That we are people that bring restoration, we bring healing, we bring compassion, we don't bring division and hostility and diminished people around us, we enrich them. And when the Spirit of God moves, and that wind comes blowing through our hearts and our souls and our minds. We go wherever he leads. And we go with confidence and we go with assurance because we know that wherever he plants us, we have the capacity to bring the fullness of the gospel with us because it's Christ that dwells within us. So that's a great image for us to consider, to move like those sorts of people. And so maybe you're sitting there thinking, but but my place, my role is just so insignificant. What can I do? I'm just one person. And to recognize the, the cumulative effect of each of us faithfully living out that sort of courageous obedience for the kingdom of God. I came across this, this quote that I think said it really well uh, in researching this this week. It says, we may think that anything we can do is so little as to be ineffective but the cumulative effect of the small efforts of every man and woman can be used mightily by God in the bringing in of his kingdom. If a thing is right, it has God behind it, and in the end, it will leave its mark. So even if you can't perceive it, even if you can't imagine it, understand that what Christ can do in you and through you, if with God behind you, it will leave a mark on you and on the world around you. And so be willing to adapt and to go wherever the Spirit of God leads and represent Christ as he has conditioned us and molded us according to this gospel. And that's really where I want to conclude. Right? What I really want to conclude is that when that happens and we find our place in this movement, what is the message that we bring? How do we articulate it in today's age in particular? And that's where I want to call our attention back to the woman that was healed. You know, it's interesting because as I was studying this, the obvious interpretation for this parable is about the natural expansion uh, that takes place, something small becoming large. And it's an appropriate way to consider everything we've talked about of how you could go from 120 to 2.6 billion. But other scholars would say, you know, it's not even really about numerical growth. It's not even about expansion, what it's really about is the incredible transformation between a seed to a tree, right? That this is really about the inherent power within the seed, and that the kingdom of God brings this inherent power to all those who receive it. And I love that interpretation because to me it seems to 
uh, appropriately fit with this context of this woman that was healed. And so you know the story, we just read it a second ago, it's on a Sabbath, there's a woman that's been crippled for 18 years, she can't straighten up, and Jesus comes and he heals her. And so the synagogue leader is frustrated and accuses Jesus and speaks to the crowd and says, there are other days of the week you should come for healing, you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus corrects that hypocrisy, saying, man, you would untie your own ox, your own horse to, to go lead it for water, and you won't even let this, this daughter of Abraham be set free from what's bound her for 18 years. It's a very powerful exchange, and the people love what they're hearing from Jesus. But the part that grabs me more than any other is what Jesus says to the woman. When he saw her, he called her forward, and he said to her, woman, you're set free from your infirmity. That's how it's translated in the NIV. A more direct translation would actually be, God's release has come to you. That's the message of the kingdom. That's the inherent power that it brings. God's release has come to you, church. When Jesus started his ministry, he quoted from the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 61, saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners. And that is the message that he wants you to hear this morning. God's release has come to you. So what binds you up today, church? What holds you captive? Right? Is it loneliness? Is it grief? Is it resentment? Is it anger? Is it temptation? Is it confusion? Is it despair? Is it doubt? What holds you captive? God has brought you in close and whispers in your ear into the depths of your heart and says, my release has come for you. It's come to set you free. That's the power of the kingdom. Not just to set you free from burdens, but to set you free from death. And when we taste and see that power, we see that the power that changes the world has to first change us. And when it does, that becomes our message. That becomes our testimony that wherever the Spirit of God leads and moves us, we come and we declare God's release has come for you. And our lives become this testimony that God's power is unleashed in our lives, in our church, our community, in our world, so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is the power, not just of storytelling. It's the power of power of our king and this release has come to you let's pray father in heaven forgive us for so many times that we fail to see the fullness of the kingdom but in this moment god in this very hour in this very breath for every heart that is gathered in this room god awaken our souls and open our minds to see the beauty of your release 
God, we come before you and we declare that we are so often held captive by the things of this world. We're held captive by sin that manifests itself in so many ways. So God, help us to run to you. Help us to celebrate this release. Help us to see that the power of these stories point us to the power of Christ. And as we embrace that power, Father, help us to become the ambassadors of this kingdom. To declare boldly, confidently, wherever you would lead, the good news of Jesus Christ who has come to bind up the brokenhearted, claim freedom for the prisoners, and release for those who are in darkness. We love you, Father. And we're so grateful for all that you do. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.